Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, tennis fans. Welcome to the Yellow Ball Network, where you'll find your tennis news. This is your host, Coach Denise, exploring tennis blessings and its effects on life's journey. Tennis is a wonderful sport, which could be the vehicle that takes you through life's journey, and our mentors might provide that roadmap for your journey. On most Thursdays, I am blessed to be talking with mentors who have paved the pathway for many tennis players and coaches. Who are these mentors, you ask? Well, on the first Thursday of the month, it's Alan Fox. Yes, Dr. Alan Fox joined us from Hawaii two Thursdays ago. On the second Thursday, is normally Coach Chuck Reese, but because of the switch we had to make this month, Coach agreed to move it to the third uh, Thursday. But he will be joining us the second Thursday of the month regularly. Uh, the rest of the month, well, you can usually, within every other month period of time anyway, you will find people like energy coach Linda LeClaire, uh, Dr. Bryce Young, uh, Coach Ashley uh, Hobson, uh, who is going to be on uh, what the week after next, uh, uh, Coach Scott Williams, uh, Coach Ed Crass. Uh, we have a whole group of coaches and uh, high school and college, and sometimes occasionally professionals will drop in with us. Uh, Nick Saviano, for instance, uh, has been on before. We've also been blessed to have the uh, executive directors of the USPTA, the PTR, and we've had executives from the USTA on uh, the broadcast too. So if there's uh, something going on in the racket portion of uh, our sport, uh, you will find them on here. Uh, we had, um, oh, would be Mike uh, Pato, uh Tennis. I see they're building another facility in uh, Texas. Uh, seems to be a growing sport, and uh, from what I understand, a uh, sport that uh, uh, isn't going to hurt your tennis game. Matter of fact, uh, people, uh, a lot of pros are also playing that game recreational just to, for exercise. So you don't know who you're going to find on the uh, broadcast. I would like to thank the Yellow Ball CEO, J.P. Weber, for hosting our network. And if you're not following We Coach Tennis on Facebook, <clears throat> excuse me, well, you're really missing out on something. Excuse me, I've got something in my throat. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, hopefully that's a little better. Because I do believe Dr. King when he said our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, each Thursday I will add my personal views on North American tennis, and naturally you will hear my biased views that the tennis journey should be going through our high schools and colleges. Who knows, someday we may wake up that sleeping giant called high school tennis. Besides our weekly conversation, the almighty willing, you will be able to continue reading my articles on Florida Tennis Magazine. And as I have previously stated, if you disagree with anything I have to say, by all means, uh, just uh, contact me at coachdenise.fhstca.net. And who knows, you may read your uh, views on Florida Tennis Magazine or hear them on one of uh, our Coach Denise Tennis broadcasts. Of course, the nice thing about Block Talk Radio and the Yellow Ball Network is that you can listen at any time you choose to the broadcast. So if you can't listen uh, live at the time you want, um, you can tune in anytime. Uh, Chuck Greasy and his American Tennis is usually on the network on Wednesdays. Uh, Sunday's Coach's Corner is with Randy Blumenthal. But you don't have to listen at that time. Or, matter of fact, even on my broadcast, you can choose to tune in any time you write. Just hit that yellow ball 
um, network logo, and uh, it'll take you uh, to the broadcast. Remember also, if somebody has taken the last issue of Florida Tennis from your pro shop, you can always see the last issue of the magazine by going to www.floridatennis.com or in between sessions, issues, you can find Jim Martz and my articles as well as other information on Facebook too. So that just go to Facebook, it's uh, FL Tennis. And you can keep up in between uh, issues, what's going on. There's just always so much going on. And uh, we do try to keep you abreast of what's happening. So if you don't find it on uh, uh, in the article, you'll probably uh, it'll be in the next issue or it'll be on the uh, Florida Tennis Facebook site. And it's also on Twitter, too. Okay, as I promised, I would do my commentary prior to the broadcast rather than go on. So on May 16th, um, commentary, I have a question to ask first, and, and that is, is the power of attitude keeping up with the challenges of team sports? I believe the, that most coaches have a specific strength that attracts athletes to them. It may be tactics, it might be technique, it might be video analysis, it could be any of the advanced uh, technologies. But for me, it was attempting to build an attitude of being on our team would support the individual's dream. Attitude was always very important to me, and I, that's what I tried to build on my 20 years of coaching high school tennis. Like many coaches from my generation, I believe that being a member of a team meant harder work, knowing that you and your teammates will struggle before reaching success. Each season, a greater appreciation of a support system became more obvious while I was coaching. And while the road to success was still one which had many turns and bumps, it was more manageable <coughs> excuse me, when an expanded team who knew, loved, and pushed each other was there. In a previous Florida Tennis Magazine article, I talked about how change is hard and often necessary. But in my humble opinion, change to make things easier is not the formula for an athlete's success, nor team's success or in my opinions, in life success. Admittedly, my, my background was developed on an I-can-do attitude. And while I expected my teams to adhere to my program, our monthly parent-player meetings uh, prior to the official start of practice each year were about learning about each other so we can love and challenge each other. Admittedly, each of those three mandatory monthly meetings had less participation each month. But when the season was officially ready to start to practice, I always had more than enough teammates there with a competitive I-can-do attitude. Unfortunately, today's awards for everyone, and quite frankly, uh, our school system teaching to test rather than uh, subject matter, and some coaches trying to emulate today's 30-minute TV broadcast rather than developing habits for success are diminishing the power of attitude. And in my biased view, attitude is important. It must be developed, and it takes time. Maybe it's time to examine history and go back to the fundamentals of our game. As a matter of fact, maybe even to our republic. That's my idea. It's your advantage. Think it over. Let me know your views. I see our mentor, Coach Chuck Reese, is here now. Coach, are you there? Yes, John. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you. Yes, I can. It's been a busy uh, 
week for you and I, and uh, normally we set up what our discussion is going to be, and as you see, I uh, set up and asked for questions from people, and I did receive, what, a half a dozen, although one was for me, but um, I don't know if you have anything you'd like to talk about first, or should we go into some of the questions that uh, people asked about? Well, I'd love to talk just a second. I, I got to go to the South Carolina State High School Tournament this week. Uh, I went up and watched uh, the state tournament on Saturday and Monday, Tuesday. They had the team finals, and then they had the individual finals afterwards in South Carolina. And I just had a few insights. Um First of all, I absolutely, absolutely believe and know after going up there and seeing all the enthusiasm that high school tennis is absolutely the sleeping giant in our country. Um, I really, we've got some kinks that we could work out, and if the administrators would just sort of uh, look at it from the standpoint of a uh, the progression that kids need to develop their games uh, and, and try to make it a sport that develops kids' tennis games and made it hard enough with the format, I think it could go to the moon. I, the amount of enthusiasm was, was fantastic. Now, there was a state tournament and things, but um, I, I absolutely believe that we're just making some fundamental mistakes that I think we could could solve, and very quickly I'll, I'll go through those if, if you if you would if you'd like. Um, I okay. talked to a couple coaches. I and one coach came up to me and said, you know, I know that you're fighting very hard for um, <clears throat> to play traditional scoring in our matches. And I said, yes, I am. I've been working on this seven or eight years because I recognize how fundamental to the whole sport of tennis, it's one of the cornerstones. If you change the scoring system, you'll, you're going to make it into a, like arena football. It's going to be a wishy-washy, fast, um, you know, it, it's going to be like a, a fad thing, and it, it'll it'll kill off our – uh, and okay, and then she goes, well, you know, the reason most of the kids do it, or they do it, they're they're always talking about time, especially in high school tennis. I said, okay, well, let's make this point. Format and scoring system are two different things. People confuse them. They usually think that scoring system is the reason why tennis is too long. And I've been through that a lot you know, all of the ins and outs of the last eight or nine years about why I believe other people, these people are doing it or that people. But let's address what she said. I said, well, first of all, format, you know, is the most important thing because the format for the team event makes it a doable or not doable thing based on time usually based on its effectiveness for fairness so that the best team wins. But also you can make it an exciting format without cutting the scoring system up and having to go to this no-add scoring junk, which really just destroys the essence of the game. So she said, well, tell me what you mean. I said, well, I, I really think that Texas has the best high school tennis format that I've ever seen. Actually, in the 80s, California had a fantastic format. I, I'll go quickly there, but I'm going to explain Texas's. In California, years ago for developmental, what you had is you had uh, eight players on the team. The first four played singles. The second four played the five, six, seven, eight played doubles. So what you did is number one, two, three, and four singles played one complete set against the other teams, number one, two, three, four. So each kid would get to play four sets. They had a running scoreboard, so each set that they won would be one point for the team. And then the doubles would play two sets against one doubles team, then two sets against the other. 
and and so you typically would have uh you know in doubles you would have what's that four points and in singles you would have uh round each person playing winning how you would have like a i forget like an 18 point or 16 point match but he said for player development was the best thing ever because you got to play four different game styles four different at the same thing now that was for player development he said it was the best but again that format may or may not have been good, but I wanted to say the best I've seen, the best system, and I recruit out in Texas a lot because they have the best system of high school tennis. What they do is they play their team tennis in the fall. They do it in the right. fall. Boys and girls both play in the fall. So what they do is they have a team tennis, boys against boys, girls against girls, and uh, they run off probably eight to ten weeks, September, October. They're done by Thanksgiving. He said then the entire rest of the year we put together tournaments for our players, and they have an individual. They have individual every other week. They have two weeks. They have a tournament where maybe four schools get together or five or six or seven or eight schools get together and they'll play a two-day tournament or now and then a three-day tournament every two weeks. So it's the players. You might have a number five player that pops up one weekend and becomes the tournament champion. Well, they take a big jump. The tragedy, or the, no, I don't want to say the tragedy, but the liability, John, everybody listening out there of playing dual match tennis is that if you have a number three player or five player, they're locked into playing that same level of player time after time after time, and they don't grow. They really don't grow. And you can say, well, a good match is a good match. No, it's not. The, in a tournament tennis, you play the first two rounds or the first part of the tournament. You, you usually play against players less than you. The middle of the tournament, you play against players even with you. And if you start developing – the last two rounds are against players better than you. So you really in one weekend can take big jumps. So I said, well, what about the parents complain, the administrators complain? He says, well, the best thing is it's two sports. We have boys team, girls team, boys individual, and girls individual. That's four team sports. So for the administrators, they can say, hey, just like – Track has cross country, track and field, indoor track and field. They have three sports using the same people. They You can have four sports that count. Well, some players might want to run cross country in the fall, so they don't play on the team fall. They'll play in the individual part. So you see there's a lot of – that's a format situation without – having to play no ad scoring and a tiebreaker for the third and all the hullabaloo that they do. So the other comment I wanted to make, um, you talked a lot about, uh, you in your opening, John, you elaborated a little bit, uh, and you talked about, you know, the, the same thing as an after-school activity or a competitive sport. And you said something that uh, basically that easy to pick up becomes easy to put down, hard to pick up is hard to put down. Well, I wanted to make the comment that with high school tennis, you have that no-cut policy. It should be no-cut, high bar. It should be no-cut, anything goes. You can have screwballs on the team or anything like that and you can be a bad kid who doesn't come to practice and still stay on the team, you should have a, you should have a no-cut high bar, and then each coach determines what that high bar is. So those are a few of my general statements starting out, John. I, um, I, somewhere along the line I wanted to talk about the mistake we're making in not letting our kids compete hard enough and – Basically, um, they only compete to the 70th percentile. They're not really – we're not allowing them to go 100%. So that's I my think that goes in thoughts. Well, I think that probably going into the fifth question, uh, we had momentum control. 
Uh, on that, probably uh, we go in the way we don't have to go in the order of the questions you had. And I agree with you about that's the advantage I had. I know I was accused of not running a no cut program because I had player parent meetings three months, the, the first Wednesday of the month before the start of the official practice. And you were told what my program is, and you were told what to expect. And we had to know each other, love each other, support each other. I expect if you were goofing off, I expected somebody to tell you, Chuck, today wasn't your better day. You know, we, we need you here, and we need you to be in the program the whole time. And you're not going to get that. Everybody thinks that being tough is a negative thing. I think being tough is just showing that you really love somebody. You want to help them help you make the team better. And I think that was the advantage. Now, I never – I thought I'd run a no-cut program. Some people said I did, but I never cut anybody. But uh, the people cut themselves. They decided, you know, this isn't what they wanted to. And, and there was nothing wrong with that. That's a choice you made. Correct. If you're going to be on the team – this is what's expected of you, and this is what you're expected to help your other teammates with. Correct. And, and, and the, the standards for what a coach demands is up to each coach's philosophy and right. their own standards. For example, I, even in college, my first 21 years, I did not cut one player at Clemson. And we had top 10 program for 13 years in, during that time. And how did we do that? Well, if you wanted to be on the Clemson program, you had to run a 515 mile, which was very, very hard for tennis players. So the tennis players had to start training in the summer, and they had to show up in great shape. Now, if someone just wanted to be a hanger-oner or a poser where they hung out, breathed their occupied space, and got all the T-shirts, and they just said, I wanted to be in the Clemson program, I can't. They, they're not going to go out and suffer and do that. But the players who wanted to be excellent had to make the 515 mile. Now at the Citadel, I don't cut players either. I have a no cut program. By the way, after 21 years, my last 12 years, they made us cut players because of that daggone proportionate gender equity thing. <laughs> because the women only had 10, I could only have 10, and I. Oh, absolutely ridiculous. I used to go tell the compliance guy, because women won't play, my men cannot play. Oh, that makes sense. You know, that, it just <laughs> aggravated me to no level. And guys want to compete all, you know, I, I always say this, and you women coaches out there, this is not a slam, but those of you coach women, you will, I'm just saying it, the way it is. The way it is, women want sports and they deserve sports, but men need sports. Men will still try to be competing when they're 25, 30, 35, and they compete in a different way. It's central to a man's nature to be competitive. It's not that women can't. Absolutely. Remember, I had a girl that won four Grand Slams, won Wimbledon, and the toughest, toughest competitor I know. She was unbelievable. This little tie girl in 2009. It's already been 10 years since she won Wimbledon singles and doubles. But the point being, she was so tough. But I told her from for day one, you're not a, to me, you're not a girl. You're not a guy. You're an athlete. I'm going to treat you like an athlete. And if you cry, if you cry, you're tanking. Get off the court. I'm not going to allow you to cry during practice. And I was really tough on her, but she just – gravitated and got tough and she oh she was tough but the point is yes but in general the point is that the colleges i'm very disappointed about you know uh they they treat athletes so differently there's a great thing on pat summit up by the way people listening i'm dying to look at the Pat Summit video, I think it's on HBO or Showtime or something. I'm looking it up. My friend told me. But she was so great, and she had a standard that she expected the girls to stand up to, and she did not let them get away with anything. 
So the point is, I think we do a great disjustice, disservice if we lower the bar. And, uh, yeah, men and women are different. They treat everybody the same, handle everybody differently is the motto there. But with with that, um, the the thing I wanted to say about the um, the gender equity thing or the um, high bar, you know, the high bar, no cut, high bar, is that each coach has their discretion. They have to operate within the framework of their schools and everything to work those things out. But the bottom line is. Coaches should remember easy to pick up becomes easy to put down, hard to pick up becomes hard to put down. And you kids never, never develop pride if they're not pushed. And uh, we should make high school tennis very, very tough. Yeah, sure, no cut, but high bar. You know, and uh, whatever that high bar is, stick by it. Every other sport has a high bar. Tennis should too. It should not be an after-school activity. I agree. Uh, Coach, let me ask you a question. Should we get into your momentum control? That uh, sure, like to sure. Talk? Whatever you you said, you had five questions. Momentum well, I got control, six. I so that's the fifth this, one. But uh, being, I think we indirectly uh, were talking about okay. that because I I I think anyway, the short scoring affects that too. Well, the short scoring, you've got to understand, the short scoring should never be used. Uh, 145 years we've had a tradition of using scoring. Um, And the thing is, you're just really bastardizing the sport when you use this short scoring. Um, and, And as a coach, I've always tried to figure out how do players develop other than just better forehands and backhands. Well, as a coach, your players develop, number one, when they can lengthen rallies. Then they learn to lengthen points, a long, get deep into the point. Then they learn how to lengthen what? Games. Mm -hmm. Wow, they're able to go three, four, five ads. Then they learn how to lengthen sets. Then they learn how to lengthen matches. Then they learn how to lengthen tournaments. They start making the semifinals or the finals of tournaments. Then they learn to lengthen their seasons and group tournaments. Then they learn to lengthen their careers. So we're taking probably the second most fundamental thing out. I mean, uh, I wish you could think of an easy analogy, but we're trying to drive a car without a steering wheel. The learning how to lengthen the game is one of the first skills players learn. What happens when a player loses with traditional scoring is they'll lengthen the game two or three times, and then they crack. They can't lengthen the set, so they lose quickly. That's why, actually, the research has been done. Brian Garman at NCAA tournament <laughs> – Excuse me, in some Cal, and I forget it was NCAA tournament in Kalamazoo. He did the research, but the research was that no ad sets actually last average of one hour and 21 minutes because there's more, actually, the games, there's, it doesn't allow a player to carry leads. It always washes away the lead a player gets. So a player gets up 3 0, they might run out to set 6 0. Well, it allows the other player to get lucky twice, and now it's 3-2. So one hour and 21 minutes is also more three-set matches. Then third, secondly, <coughs> excuse me, um, one hour and 16 minutes for the normal two-out three-set traditional scoring match. But once again, we need to think of format being different than scoring systems. And... To answer your question, yes, it affects momentum control tremendously. One of the bases of momentum control is there's eight fundamental bases that I'll go over very quickly here. But number one is your ability to group points. Three in a row starts the flow. There is magic to three in a row. And I could tell you five stories off the top of my head where my player was losing very badly, and I said, just count to three. 
if you get the last two points in the game, then you've still got to get the first point in the next game. You try to get three points in a row. There's magic in three. Any player in the world can win one point against somebody. Federer, two in a row, if you're the underdog, you'll throw a party and you're done. But once you get three in a row, you grouping points, it makes a huge difference. This is called a conversion. But I wanted to make this point, too. If you do not win the first point of the game in traditional scoring, you must win three points in a row or four out of the next five at some time. Now, think about that. If you don't win the first point, if and then everything is changed when a person is up by one, the other person has to learn how to group points. In no ad scoring, you can win a point, I win a point, you win a point, I win a point, you win a point, I win a point, you win a point. You only have to win one in a row, which anybody can do. There is a skill to winning three in a row. So that's the first thing. The second thing is your ability. The momentum is based on three things. First thing I teach kids is learn how to win three in a row. Coaches out there, you can play a thing called conversion set. In other words, your youngsters, they play a set and they serve until they win three in a row or the, assist, the opponent wins three in a row. So you might, if I've got two and you win the next point, you have one, I have none. This is called a conversion set, and that's a fantastic way for kids to learn how to group points. So you can see right there how we bastardize tennis when we only force a kid with no ad scoring to play with one one point in a row. And I'm going to move on, John, unless you want me to uh, you want to ask questions. But no, uh, no, no, you move on. Okay, ahead, you move the on. other principle. The other principle is this. Very early in my coaching, probably back in the 70s, I realized my players, I, again, I would see them get better in practice, and they would hit the ball plenty, plenty good. And as I said, they learned how to lengthen rallies, then they were lengthening points, then they were lengthening games. But typically, they would become an add-in, add-out situation, add-in, add-out when they learned to lengthen the games. And what I noticed what happened is that every time they got ahead, they would play very poorly. And when they got behind, they would play really well. Their hand-eye coordination would work. Their perceptual skills would work very, very well. And I started thinking about other sports, how in basketball it was always when you had to make the front end of a one-and-one, when you were behind, you always made it. When you were ahead by five points, there was a tendency to get sloppy with it. Also in baseball, you'd see player get ahead in the count pitching maybe 0 and 2 and then they couldn't find the strike zone anymore or batting the reverse. So I watched and watched and I realized you know and then I of course in my psychology classes in college I remembered back to the Yates inverted U hypothesis which is called the pressure curve. And with that I remembered that when the psychology professor was speaking about it, they, she said that when the pressure is too little, you will play worse. When it's too much, you will play worse. You have to be at the right amount, optimal range of pressure. So really what I started coaching was that when you're ahead, you're going to play worse. The other opponent when you're ahead, they're behind. So when you're ahead and you do something careless, you're going to switch all the momentum because they're going to play good. And you you can attack, but you force them to play. If you play quick pressure when you're ahead, now I want to make a point in a minute here, because when you put it together, when you're ahead, it's how you get ahead. But in general, when you're ahead, if you play too much quick pressure or too aggressive right away, you basically flub the lead and they play great. In other words, let's say you're coaching basketball like you did, John, for so many years, and you're behind by five with four minutes to go and you put on the press. And you come from behind and you take the lead and you go up by three 
then basically what happens, you push them into a, to a fight-or-flight syndrome where their hand-eye coordination starts working. A lot of times they'll fight you off, and then they'll take the lead. The best – I watched Dean Smith's team for years at North Carolina – his team would come from behind, take the lead. They'd get up by five. They'd go into the four corners, frustrate the devil out of the other team. The other team basically would choke their brains out, and they'd win by 15. And, and the bottom line is people play better when they're behind, a little worse when they're ahead. And then even points in momentum control, usually it's, it's the confident person who does regular stuff good enough is – Really, really the person who succeeds. So I came up even with my players when I first started doing this. Now, this is four principles, first in a row. Three in a row starts the flow. That's a conversion principle. Secondly, okay, secondly, when you're in the lead, I tell the players, I used to say slowly make them bleed. But then I said I realized that if you play tentative, Starting out, the momentum switches because the other person's behind. But I said, when you're in the lead, you stick them early in the game, then you slowly make them bleed. And I can't tell you how well this works. <laughs> Everybody that plays our team in doubles, if our opponents are listening, they know that right after we get a service break in doubles, we'll cross the first two points. We'll poach the first two points. And, and, we never lose the game if we're 15 all. 30 love, it's over. Even if we're down love 30, we initiate start out. We stick them early in the game and so slowly make them bleed. But when you're ahead, you play, you're disciplined. You play with discipline when you're ahead. Initial aggression, then discipline. When you're behind, the rule is when you're trying to come back, you stay patient with your fundamentals, but always on the attack. You take your time, but you always take the attack to the opponent. And then when the score is tied, the rule's really not that tough. Regular stuff is always good enough. And so I gave these rhymes to the players, as silly as they sound, because my players could never remember them. The coach, what do I do when I have when I'm behind? I made them memorize the rhymes. So four rhymes so far are three in a row starts to flow. And if you're trying to come back, or if you're in the lead, stick them early in the game, then slowly make them bleed. If you're trying to come back, you're behind. It's about aggression. If you're trying to come back, patient with your fundamentals, but always, always on the attack. And then when the score is tied, the rule's not that tough. Regular stuff is always good enough. So I tell the guys, when you're ahead, it's about discipline. When you're behind, it's about aggression. When you're even, it's about confidence in who you are, regular stuff, good enough. Now, there is more to the thing that overloads the situation. For years, for about four or five years in the 80s, I used this for some really good success. But I realized that there were times when players took leads and they did not consolidate them. They would play break, I used to call them breakdown points when they were ahead or delayed pressure points. So I realized that it's how you take the lead, too. Did you take the lead on your good shot or the opponent's bad shot? That matters a lot. Then I also realized that for our action, there's a reaction. So there are only four ways to win or lose a point. If you can stay with me about three more minutes, I'll, I'll explain it here. But, okay, so there's only four ways. It's my good or my bad, your good or your bad. So I call these action-reaction points, action-reaction points. So what it means is that when you hurt someone, you hurt them, there's a tendency for them to want to hurt you back. So you don't give them a target. After you hurt someone, you use delayed pressure. In other words, if you hit an ace, I make the players hit a body serve on the next one. And then at the same time, if you hurt yourself, you stop the bleeding. So after my good or my bad, I have the players do delayed pressure. They play smart. When they are, if the players are get hurt by their opponent, like if their opponent hurts them, I tell them to hurt them back. 
And if the opponent makes a bad mistake, I tell him you got to hurt him. So quick pressure after the opponent's good or bad, delayed pressure after my own good or bad. So I came up with rhymes, of course. Player my team could never remember. Coach, what do I do now? What do I do now? So I told them, if they give you a whack, you hurt them right back. Okay? If they make a bad mistake, a quick point you try to take. So both times, when your opponent hurts you, or, or they hurt you or they hurt themselves, you've got to bump it up. In every other sport, you'll see this. In football, if the team, if the team fumbles, almost always the first play the coach will run will try to exploit them. When they're down, you hurt them. You hit them in the gut when they're down. And after the person does, if the team does good, you try to hurt them back to neutralize. They're good. Now, but at the same time, as I said, my good or my bad, on my good, I'd say when I've hurt him and it started to bleed, delayed pressure to fester the wound is all I really need. So I use delayed pressure. And the worst rhyme of all is if I've made a bad mistake and it has me in a fret, I regroup with my fundamentals but never start until I'm set. That's about the best I could come up with. So let me repeat <laughs> these. There are eight fundamentals. Number one, conversions is what you learn first. Three in a row starts to flow. That's fundamental to all tennis. Number two, if you're in the lead, stick them early in the game that slowly make them bleed. If you're trying to come from behind, if I'm behind, if I'm trying to, if I'm behind, uh, let's see, if I'm behind, <laughs> excuse me, uh, if I'm trying to come back, always patient with fundamentals, but always on the attack. If the score is tied, the rule's really not that tough. Regular stuff is good enough. Then action, reaction. Those are based on score. So that's second category. Third category is action, reaction. Third category, action, reaction. If they give me a whack, I'm going to hurt them right back. If they make a bad mistake, quick point I try to take. If my if I've hurt them, now my good, my bad. If I've hurt them and have started to bleed, delayed pressure to fester the wound is all I really need. And if I've made a bad mistake and it has me in a fret, regroup with my fundamentals and don't start until I'm set. Then momentum has to do, of course, with intervals between the points. We do different things between the points, too. Okay, so that's the eight fundamentals, but let me explain this, too. The next part of momentum has a lot to do between the points. If the person, the point, point either ends, his good, his bad, you're good or you're bad. I tell my players if it's his good, I clap the racket, say job shot, good shot, and then I try to hurt them back. <laughs> if they make a bad mistake, I never get in their face, but I go to the same stroke again. If they backhand broke down, I make them break down and do it again and again and again until they make it. Now, on the other hand, after they're good, they're bad, I take have players take less time between points. My good, if I hit a winner, I have the players go touch the fence. If my player makes a mistake, I have them go touch the fence and reset, you know, because you'd want to take more time after your own good or your own bad. Oh, after your own good, it settles in and it provides more fear for the other opponent after my own bat, it allows me to regroup. And I make the players say eight words when they touch the fence after their own bat. I make them say, oh, actually six words, <laughs> next right thing, play to win. In other words, do the next right thing, time to play to win. Next right thing, play to win. And, and I make them go through the gym lair 15-second cure after their mistakes. Now, so, all of those things, most people look at forehands and backhands, John, only. But tennis is so much more than just forehands and backhands. When we bastardize no it with, with no ad scoring, Coach, what happens is the players never learn to play chess. They only learn how to play, you know, crapshoot. I mean, it, it's just horrid to me that our leaders are allowing such a bad thing to happen in our sport and to treat it like arena football when there's it's so so much deeper 
how do you put all that together? Well, I, you know, I, I take the player's game style and I tell them if you're a delayed pressure player and then you look at action reaction, you look at score, if two out of three say play delayed, two or three or three out of three play delayed pressure, you do it. If two, if the one out of three, if you, if two out of, if it's, if you're a delayed pressure player and it's, the action reaction says quick pressure, and the score says quick pressure, you play quick pressure. So it works out to 75% of the time you're going to play delayed pressure. 25% of the time you play quick. In any sport, in basketball, you might be a slowdown offense versus quick pressure. But the point is this, and this is the big point. If you do not use momentum control and you only play your style, if you are a delayed pressure player, a delayed pressure basketball team, or delayed pressure football team, if you have to rely on delayed pressure, you will always lose to somebody who plays delayed pressure better than you, and you always lose to somebody who attacks better than you counter. And that's 25 percent of the time you're going to always lose. I don't care how good you are at delayed pressure. At quick pressure. You're always going to lose to somebody that plays quick pressure better than you, and then you're always going to lose to somebody who counters better than you attack. If, John, if you don't use the 25% time for quick pressure or delayed pressure when you're a quick pressure player. With all that, we've gone over it for 30 minutes now, and coaches, if your head is spinning right now, don't be. It's all very logical. In every sport, this works. I've researched football, basketball. I look at baseball, pitches, being ahead or behind as a pitcher, being up or down in the count as a batter. And go to my book. I'm going to get to do my own commercial. Go to Coaching Tennis, Amazon. Coaching Tennis is the name of the book by Chuck Creasy, K-R-I-E-S-E. It is one of the top-selling tennis instructional books of all time. And it's all over the world. It's in Southeast Asia. Actually, I'll tell you, one of the top ten players in the world, I'm, I'm not bragging on this, I don't want to make a big deal, but I was at his college when he was in college, and he came up to me and he said, my coach, my dad taught me out of your book in South Africa when I was a child. And he, I used this, and we didn't have hardly anything, but he taught me how to play out of your book. The book's called Coaching Tennis, and it is still out there on Amazon. Just look it up. And uh, Momentum Control is there. And last I'll say about momentum, about momentum Control, this is the only place in the world I'm the only person that's come up with the research. There's a guy in England that's written a Momentum book, but I've never talked to him, but I think he got all of his ideas after I did a seminar in Great Britain in 1991. I went over and did a European tour in Great Britain and Spain and the Netherlands, and I went to Japan that year after some of my books came out. So the point is, is folks, this game is chess. It's not checkers. It's fly fishing. It's not bait casting. It is concert piano. It's not electronic keyboard. It is the real deal, and we should never shortchange it. Looks like we'll Coach, let me minutes. ask you before I got one more question. You, because you answered my question, one of the people wanted to know if uh, I got a percentage from your book and why I'm always uh, pushing it. But I think you just answered my question. No, I don't get a percentage, but if you. It, it, to me, if you want to be a mentor and you want to help people, you got to give them the right source, and that's why I, I'm uh, I'm always pushing the book. So I think you answered Thank my you. question for me. Uh, so let me get to another uh, question, uh, and I have my own opinion on it, but I'd like to uh, hear your uh, opinion on it, and that is. When you're looking at a player and you're developing a game from them, does their off-court personality determine what style of game you're going to put play them? Uh, is there, can they have a you know 
Well, I'm not, I, I won't give Great my question. opinion. So, so Great you question. answer that you would answer that here. I have my own opinion, but I like to hear yours. Yeah, great question. Now, this it, I, I can think of some specific players, and I don't think you would it would bother him for me to talk about the great Demisa Robinson, who played for me in uh, you know early two thousands. Demisa is fantastic athlete from Washington, D.C., and he now he runs the Parks programs up there. He's a wonderful – but he could flat – I mean, his vertical jump was probably 40 inches. Tremendous athlete. However, so you would think, my gosh, I want this guy serving and volleying and hugging the net like his first teddy bear. You know, and, and, and – but, but he was a very, very disciplined – uh, step by step, uh, repetitive learning thinker. In other words, he did not like taking lots of chances. He did everything in detail. His personality was more more wired for maybe counter punching and grinding. So a person who's there's four kinds of personalities I go by. Those that are. Uh, Choleric or control people, sanguines, fun-loving people, melancholic as Demisa was, which is detail people, and then you have phlegmatic people who are the peacekeepers. Well, the point being is that personality overrides the physical part when it comes down to that situation. That's a very difficult coaching job because I'm saying, get to the net, get to the net. My golly, one of the best athletes I've ever seen. But the way he was wired was, first of all, he didn't like getting passed. Then secondly, he he liked everything being in order. He didn't like the, mm-hmm. the you know, gunslinger mentality of having to go to the net all the time. So what I did was I built his base around his personality. But then I gave him two or three plays to run based on his personality quick pressure plays at and based on momentum control. Like to me, so I used to say, look, when the score is, for example, on second serves, 30 all, 15 all, 30 all, or 40 all, after his bad or his good second serve, I want you on the net no matter what. Even if you fail, you got your serve coming up, but this is the game break time. And so the point I'm making is that or I'll tell you another one, a person who's small, <laughs> whose body is real small, and they don't have the physical attributes to attack all the time, but they have a gunslinger mentality where they like the excitement of being at the net. Whoa, that's that's another one. I had a kid actually named Bruce Lee. <laughs> actually, it was this uh, kid from New York, but his, his uh, Chinese name was different. But Bruce Wada, competitor. But Bruce was a tremendous counterpuncher and grinder, but he always wanted to go to that. He always went on these times. You'd go in and, sorry, you're the best you can be going to the net is about a 70% man. You're going to lose to people's average passing shots. You know, and, and, the, and so the point is we, again, had to give him plays to run. He won our conference championship, I remember, 1997. The last match on the court, he served and volleyed when it was add-out break point in the third set. You know, on a second serve, he came in and knocked the volley off. A, Whoa! And it turned the whole tide of the match. He won the conference championship based on momentum control. Now, if you get a conservative kid that likes to grind and his body's set with it, well, that's the personality that fits his game. Or if you've got a beast of an athlete that loves to come to net all the time, all the time, all the time, well, you might have you Andy Roddick or somebody that's really terrifying as a player. Just really, it's it, it, it's hard when you have different personalities. That's why types. we have to get to know but, these players, right, Coach? I think that oh, gets to your mean, point but, but that you were point. doing. Your point and my point is that there is no shortcuts. One of the reasons no, that no. I meeting player parent meetings in high school before is because unless you get to know these people, 
you know, there is no, this is your coach. You have your own personality. If you know who you are, you've got a good beginning. If you know who you're coaching, now you're you're able to do a lot more. And when we start trying to make shortcuts, if it's shortcuts in scoring, if it's shortcuts in uh, our training that we don't want to work them so hard, if it's shortcuts that we're going to give everybody – you know, we're going to uh, teach to the test rather than the subject matter. We, we've created some potential problems doing that. So I thought we would well agree said. on that, but I wanted you to answer that problem. You've got about two minutes well left, said. Coach, and then i got to tell the people who okay. we're at next week. Sounds good. I'll wind it up. Look, coach the heart first. Best coaching is done, as you said, John, from the inside out. People see the outside in. The player plays from the inside out. Remember, a player can never see himself or herself play. They only feel themselves play. So you must coach the heart and you must coach the confidence. And the only way they do that is to be number one in the world at being themselves, not as anybody else. Then as, you know, you can work with the other part of it, to coach the heart first. And you said that very well. So, Thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun again. It's always fun, John. Well, it is. I always enjoy talking, and I I thought some of the questions I cheated today with my commentary because I thought some of the questions we had for you fit right in there. So I said, well, let me use this for uh, my commentary. I look forward to us talking again next month. Uh, you'll be back on the second uh, Thursday again, right? I sure look forward to it, John. Okay. And next week we we have uh, with us uh, Coach uh, Bill Patton uh, out in California. He has another book out, Now the Athlete-Centered Coach. Uh, Bill has been uh, a speaker for me uh, at a couple of my uh, workshops. Uh, he's written a book on high school uh, coaches. As you know, my bias uh, in tennis goes through high school and uh, college. That's uh, uh, I'm no longer in law enforcement, so I, I could admit I'm, I'm a very biased uh, uh, person. But uh, I just uh, think that the game of tennis uh, – We've got to bring our athletes out like every other sport does. Football does it. Baseball does it. Uh, Why not tennis? Uh, We can't give up on that, folks. So uh, next week we will have uh, Bill Patton on. And then the week after that, uh, another uh, great coach will be back in uh, Florida with a Coach Ashley Hobson, if you've ever been to the Inspiration uh, Academy, it's just when you walk into that place, you know, uh, you're with, uh, at a fine uh, place, uh, and uh, I look forward to that. Like I said, uh, if you uh, miss the show, you can always tune in at any time you want. I will uh, look forward to uh, talking with you again next week, the Almighty Willing, and uh, you, the next issue of uh, Florida uh, tennis uh, magazine, you will see my article in there, and I will be addressing uh, uh, high school uh, tennis. Um, uh, I, I work hard at trying to stay positive. Uh, I, I am disappointed uh, in where we are going, uh, not just in tennis, but I don't understand why. <laughs> Uh, a sport that we have to give so much, uh, why we're afraid of stepping out. Uh, Today on another issue, uh, on my own personal account, I had somebody said, that's that's not related to tennis. What in the world in life is not related to tennis? Uh, If somebody could explain that to me, if you really, if you're a coach, and you believe that coaching tennis or coaching any sport, coaching baseball is about throwing a baseball and hitting a baseball, or tennis is about hitting a uh, tennis ball and serving, then I feel sorry for you. 
Coaching is about helping people get through and develop life skills. So I look forward to talking with you again next week. Have a blessed week. Tell your friends to tune in. Bye now. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.